Thank you for downloading this episode of Pardes from Jerusalem. This podcast has been generously sponsored by Bob Karasov and Hannah Bloomfield in honor of their children and grandchildren. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rabbi Mike Foyer on Parashat Mishpatim. You can download the source sheet for this podcast online. For more digital downloads or to subscribe to any of our podcast channels, please visit us at elmod.pardes.org. Parshat Mishpatim, service or slavery? The Ela Mishpatim Asher Tasim Lif Nehem. It's a good start. These are the rules that you should set before him. Seems like a natural flow from where we left off with the drama of the revelation at Sinai last week. It, in fact, is, of course, the beginning of one of the key collections of laws that the Torah is going to present. What follows, however, is a little bit of a mystery to me. Because the verse goes on and says, When you acquire a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go free without payment. A Hebrew slave? I mean, that should be a contradiction in terms at this point. I thought we were done with that when we left Egypt. So not only is this announcement of the Hebrew slave a bit of a come down in scale from the Ten Commandments that we heard last week, and in particularly the introductory note, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the out of bondage, I mean that it seemed that the context of the revelation at Sinai and the invitation to a relationship of divine commandedness flowed from the fact that we were no longer slave. So not only is that a letdown, it seems to call into question the entire process of the Exodus that led up to this moment. I mean, wasn't the whole point to leave slavery? If that's the case, then why are we assuming the new society that the Torah mandates Am Yisrael build in its land is just going to perpetuate the institution? Now, from a very basic standpoint, we could say that part of the answer, at least, is simply a reflection of the socioeconomic reality of antiquity. Societies in the ancient Near East were slave societies. And in this case, the Torah actually is limiting the institution of slavery to six years, at least within the people of Am Yisrael. There's a whole nother discussion that I want to note, but put to the side here, which is the difference between a Hebrew slave and a Canaanite slave, a slave that comes from outside of Am Yisrael. But for now, we're focusing on our parsha, and it's the Hebrew slave. Now, and as Rashi points out, drawing his sources from the Midrash, mostly the Mechilta, this act of slavery is actually an institution of reform within Israelite society. Because the slave referred to in this verse is actually a poor man who stole something but lacked the resources to pay back what he'd taken. And then once found guilty by the court was sold into slavery or rather indentured servitude in order to pay back his debts. And it's true that he's now an indentured servant for the next six years. But it's a critical piece of the puzzle to know that he and his family will no longer have to steal in order to eat. I mean, the Torah says later on in Vayikra 25.41 about the moment when this Hebrew slave gets set free. Right? He and his children with him shall go free of your authority. And then the sages say, wait a minute. He and his children? I mean, you have him enslaved. You didn't get his kids. And they learned in the Gemara and Kedushin that the master is actually obligated to support not only the slave, but his children and wife. 
So we can see from this that there is a perspective that the Hebrew slaves is an attempt to use the institution of slavery to support the weakest members of society. And in fact, if you look closely at all the legislation the sages both derived from the Torah and then from their own processes heaped upon the institution of slavery, you can see that they were determined to transform Hebrew slavery and to place so many obligations on the master that in the end, the Gemara and Kedushin concludes anyone who acquires a Hebrew slave is like one who acquires a master for themselves. So we could look at this reappearance of slavery right at the beginning of Mishpatim as a socioeconomic reality, which should at least be ameliorated, if not actually transformed into an outright tool of social reform. But the Swages went even further, because as they read a little bit more onward in our Parsha, they sensed a subtle criticism of the institution of slavery within the Torah's own words, right? Because the Parsha continues, Vim amol yomar right? If the slave declares, I love my master, my wife and children, those that were given to him in slavery, I do not wish to go free. So there's a process of what's called hatsa'ah. You take the slave, you bring him to the doorpost of the house, and the master pierces his ear with an awl, and he remains a slave for life. And what really bothers the sages here is that phrase, ahafti et aduni, I love my master. The Gemara in Kedushin 22b says the following, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zachai would expound this verse as a type of decorative wreath, meaning as an allegory. He says, why is the ear different from all the other limbs in the body, in that the ear alone is the one that gets pierced here? He says, the Holy One, blessed be he, said, the ear heard my voice on Mount Sinai when I said, for me, the children of Israel are slaves. And that means, says the Gemara, they should not be slaves to slaves. And yet this man went and willingly acquired a master for himself. Therefore, let his ear be pierced. So there may be a socioeconomic reality to slavery in antiquity. And we might even be able to say that the Torah seeks to employ that reality as a tool of social reform. But it should never be a choice freely made, says Rabbi Yochanan. One should only serve God and never serve slaves. But what does this tell us about the whole process of the Exodus as we find ourselves standing here still at the foot of Sinai, receiving an enormous bunch of obligations, many of which might feel a little bit like servitude? Now, most of us have been taught to think of the exodus from Egypt as a journey from slavery to freedom. And if you're of a certain generation, which includes me, at least in the reruns, or you just like vintage movies, you can probably picture Charlton Heston's Moshe facing off against Yul Brynow, starring as Pharaoh, and declaring, let my people go. Or, if you haven't seen the movie, maybe you relate to the Freedom Satyrs, ones which occurred during the civil rights movements, or maybe you're amongst those still doing them today. Like the satyrs held by Israeli Jews, together with the Sudanese refugees in our country, who literally escaped bondage in Egypt for the freedom of Eretz Yisrael. It's all very beautiful, and the message extremely powerful. There's only one problem. They're somewhat founded on a misunderstanding of the story of the Exodus. Because Moses doesn't say, let my people go. Or, Rather, it's only part of what he says. The first appearance of the phrase is actually back there in Exodus chapter 7, 16, where God says, He's telling Moshe, You'll say to Pharaoh, 
Right? Oh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you in order to say, Let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness. We, because the leaving from Egypt was not an end unto itself. This was not simply a liberation from oppression. It was a freedom to worship, or in plain language, that they may serve me in the wilderness. Because, of course, the word, that they serve me in the wilderness, is the same word we use to describe ourselves as avadim, hyenu. We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. And if you're wondering how it is that the purpose of the Exodus is explicitly to enter into a new form of what looks like servitude, we can go right back to God's original explanation to Moshe during their first encounter at the burning bush. That's Exodus 3.12. Right? God says, I'm going to be with you. And Moshe says, well, why would Pharaoh listen to me? And this will be your sign that it was I who sent you. Listen to this. When you bring out the people from Egypt, they will serve God at this mountain. The purpose of the Exodus, since it before it began, has been a different form of avdut. We were set free in order to serve. In other words, the Exodus is not the story of a journey from slavery to freedom but rather a journey from servitude to service. And the question that I want to spend a few minutes thinking about is, what lies between them? Because one could definitely look at divine service as a new form of slavery, with God as the angry master. I mean, especially at this point of the book of Shemot. If you look at Sefer Breshit, the book of Genesis, you'll find only three commandments in the entire book. Now, two are pretty foundational, pu'uvu, be fruitful and multiply, and brit milah, the sign of the covenant, circumcision. The third, well, you know what? Let's do a quiz. I'm always curious if anybody knows the third. You can email me at ravmikefoyer at gmail.com or mikef at pardes.org.il. Tell me if you know. But meanwhile, there are only three commandments in the all, the whole of Book of Breshit. But since the Exodus really got going back in Parsha Bo, there's been a veritable explosion of obligation. In fact, in our Parsha, Parsha Mishpatim, in this Parsha alone, there are 53 commandments. And those bring our total close to 100 after only three in the whole book of Breshit. What's going on here? Isn't this a servitude as heavy as any in Egypt? Now, you might tell me that serving God is different than serving Pharaoh by definition, that the question is not about the nature of the service, but about the nature of the master. And I might agree with you, but I know a little bit too much history to do so comfortably. Because I've seen, as I'm sure you have if you've been paying attention, how religion can serve as a tool for harnessing personal power, just like Pharaoh, and even for building idols to the ego of humanity as big as the pyramids in Egypt. So I'm going to need something more. I want to know what's the difference between being of de Hashem and of de Parot. And I think that the key to understanding the difference between service and servitude, and therefore for gaining insight on why Parsha Mishpatim, which, like I said, is the introduction to the heart of the Torah's legal code, its most burdensome binding laws, begins with the image of the Hebrew slave. 
So I think that that key lies actually in the Rambam's explanation of what happened to us in Egypt. You can look it up in the Mishnah Torah, Avodazar 1.3, or in the source sheet conveniently provided for this podcast. So the Rambam's in the midst of explaining the whole backstory to the mistake of what he calls the mistake of idolatry, and then the emergence of Avraham as a unique path in understanding of God, then ultimately toward the giving of the Torah. He's contrasting the path of Avraham with that of the idolatrous world. And he says, the world saw a God-knowing nation called into existence until Israel spent a long time in Egypt when they turned to be instructed in their practice and to worship the stars as they did. Verily, but in a short time, the root which Abram had planted would have been uprooted, and the sons of Jacob would have turned to the universal error, meaning idolatry, save because of the Lord's love for us, and because he observes the oath of covenant with Avram our father, he appointed Moshe our master, Lord of all prophets, and made him his messenger. Now, if you were listening closely, you might have heard a version of the Exodus from Egypt, which is less familiar because what the Rambam just told you is that the suffering in Egypt wasn't actually about slavery and that the redemption was a little bit different than you thought. What we suffered from in Egypt was the darkness of idolatry and Moshe came not to set us free but to bring us back to God. And so in order to tie all these pieces together into some intelligible whole we have to understand the link between slavery and idolatry. And in order to do that we need to remember that the classic rabbinic term for idolatry is actually avodah zara, strange worship. Once again, the avodah is there. Now, I'm willing to bet that everybody listening has had a job which they hated. The type of job which the only reason they had it was in order to pay the bills. I don't want to exaggerate. That's not exactly slavery. But in our world, it's certainly a form of servitude. Because when I identify not at all with my labor, when I'm simply subject to the realities that I've got to eat, and therefore I subject myself to some sort of servitude in order to make ends meet, that, of course, is modern slavery. And I hope we've all experienced the opposite, a situation in which I identify deeply with my mission, right? I identify with my labor, no matter how backbreaking, because somehow that labor is an expression of my selfhood, my values. That labor is an opportunity to become more of who I want to be and to help transform the world, even if in ever so little an amount, into what I'd like to see it be. That is service. Because idolatry and divine service work the same way. They're both Avodah, they're both service. Just one is strange. Avodah Zara, it's estranged from my selfhood. It doesn't help me become who I want to be to express my essential self in relationship to God. No, classically, idolatry is a service of lust and fear. But divine service, no matter how demanding, even if it involves 613 commandments with countless rabbinic addendum, the goal is somehow that it helped me become more of who I want to be in relationship to my master. And of course, to make the world more of what I dream to see. By the way, this may sound a little bit bizarre to some of you listening. And that's why religion, when it's imposed from without, is always a hair's breadth away 
from idolatry. Now, there's a whole other layer to this discussion, which I don't want to confuse you by pursuing right now, but I like to give some homework. So I encourage you to make a comparative reading of Breshit 128, where the purpose of humanity is presented as conquest of the world, and Breshit 215, where our purpose is presented as service of the world, of the Ulishamra. And then ask yourself the type of relationship between humanity and the planet which emerges from each and its consequences toward relationship or estrangement. But for now, I want to wrap it up because we've kind of passed most people's attention span. We can look at the opening of Mishpatim, like I said, as a recognition of social reality. Like I said, after all, the world has still not managed in our day to rid itself of the evil of slavery. How could we expect such a thing from antiquity? Further, we could see it as the wisdom of the Torah in trying to use such an institution as a deep opportunity for social reform by transforming the exploitation of the weakest element of society into a responsibility to help them. And we can also sense the Torah's concern that one might choose a life of slavery out of one's very fear of freedom. Remember, the ear that heard, Kili b'nei Yisrael avadim, right, that all of Am Yisrael are my slaves, should be pierced through, says Rabbi Yochanan. And that's a warning for our day. I've said it many times, but I'll tell you now, if you want to understand the creep back toward authoritarian government and a popularity that fascism seems to be taking in our world, go read Eric Fromm's Escape from Freedom. But for now, we also have to add that we can take the fact that the legal code at the heart of Shemot begins with the Hebrew slave as an invitation to ask, what is the difference between service and servitude? How do I change my posture so that that which I serve is an expression of my selfhood? Well, I'll end with this, because that question might give us a new insight on the famous line which comes right toward the end of our Pasha, right? Right? Moshe took the record of the covenant and he read it aloud to the people. And they said, Everything which the Lord has spoken, we will do and then we will understand. Because there's a faith which comes in the Torah. Not just a faith that God exists, but a faith that God understands the human condition, perhaps even more than we. A faith that has traveled down through history that those who have managed the law and continue to do so within our communities today are attempting to attach us to something which is larger than us, which we can't understand at first glance. But we have faith that once we do it, we'll understand that we are truly in service of the best which we have to offer. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for downloading this episode of Pardes from Jerusalem. For more digital downloads or to subscribe to any of our podcast channels, please visit us at elmod.pardes.org.